Now turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Today, as we take a brief break from our studies through Joel, uh, to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we're in John, chapter 20, beginning to read today in verse 19, reading to the end of the chapter in verse 31, as we hear this account of what happened when Jesus showed up. Uh, and made himself known to his disciples after his resurrection. John chapter 20, today reading verses 19 through 31. Before we read this word together, please join me in a word of prayer, seeking God's blessing on our study. Let's pray. O great and glorious Lord, we thank you for this word which reveals to us your Son, our Savior. We pray that you also would add the grace of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who hear. Help us, Father, to see and behold, to read and mark and learn and inwardly digest so that we may trust in the Savior whom you have sent, that we may believe in him and by believing might have life in his name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in John chapter 20, beginning to read in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and Place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was in the summer of 1906, and a wealthy New York banker by the name of Charles Henry Warren rented a summer vacation house for his family in the upscale area of Oyster Bay, Long Island. He furnished the house with all of the comforts of home. He even staffed it with maids and a butler and a private cook for the, for the stay. And 
was only about three weeks into the family vacation when an illness overtook the family. Six members of the household were laid up with headaches, with fatigue, with uh, stomach pains, with intense high fevers. It was found out later that the sickness was typhoid, a typhoid outbreak in the family, which is strange in this upscale area of Oyster Bay because it's the sort of thing that's normally associated with unclean water supplies, the kind of thing that you would find in the inner city in New York. A sanitation team, an expert was called in to figure out where this outbreak had come from so the owners of the house could continue renting it out. And they traced it back to the cook, an Irish immigrant in her 40s by the name of Mary Mallon. Now, in our age of COVID, we have become accustomed to the idea of an asymptomatic carrier of disease, right? We're told that you can uh, transmit COVID even if you don't have a cough. Well, in Mary Mallon's day, this is a pretty new idea. Nevertheless, this woman that everybody said was perfectly healthy had been associated with several outbreaks of typhoid, and they seemed to follow her wherever she went. She had worked for eight separate families in the New York area. Seven of those families had an outbreak of typhoid, and those outbreaks were tied to at least two confirmed deaths and a few other suspected ones. So against her will, Mary was taken She was tested. She was eventually quarantined in a one-room cottage in the East River. And there she stayed for three years. She was eventually released, uh, but had to promise upon release that she would do two things. One, that she would check in with the New York State Department of Health regularly. And two, that she would no longer work in food service. When she failed to keep either of those agreements, she was reapprehended. She was re-quarantined, and there she remained for the next 23 years until her death. And when she died, only nine people attended the funeral of Mary Mallon, the woman known to the rest of the world as Typhoid Mary. I know some of you remember the hurtful names and words that stuck to you through your grade school years. I know that some of you probably have family members that love nothing more than to remind you of all of the mistakes you've ever made in your life, but what on earth do you have to do to be known publicly by the biggest disaster you've ever been a part of? Typhoid Mary. Doubting Thomas. Of course, the scriptures don't actually call Doubting Thomas Doubting Thomas, that is a name that the church has given to this apostle. But what the scriptures do for us is that they they do not hesitate to show us in vivid detail the doubt and the disbelief of this disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, it may be surprising, but that's what the scripture does regularly. It shows us the sin of all of our would-be heroes in the Bible. What do you find when you open the pages, but you find Abraham's lies? You find Moses' anger. You find David's adultery. You find Thomas's doubt. And all of those things are in there. At least one of the reasons those things are in there is to keep us from, uh, from confusing those people with the real hero of the story. The other reason those things are there is to keep us from confusing ourselves with the hero of our stories. 
After all, what do we find in all of those accounts but lies that look like our lies? Anger that looks like our anger and doubts that sound an awful lot like our doubts. What we find in Doubting Thomas is somebody who looks an awful lot like we do. Another person full of sin that Jesus nevertheless is able to draw to himself and make them his own and give them the blessing of life and forgiveness. You know, when Paul wrote about the Old Testament, he said, these things were written for our instruction. Now, we could say the same thing about the New Testament. Why do we find doubting Thomas in the pages of Scripture? Not so that we would think ill of him, not so that we would think well of him, not so that we would even think well of ourselves. This is written for our instruction, that we might believe what he refused to believe. And that by believing, we might have life in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, this account of Doubting Thomas comes in a context. And the context surrounding it is a commission that Jesus gave to his apostles on the night that he showed up, right after his resurrection. That's our first point today, Christ's commission for his people. And so it was that in the same night of his resurrection, that first day of the week, that first Sabbath Sunday, Jesus showed up, and when he showed up, he came to tell his disciples that there was a message that needed to be proclaimed, and a job that needed to be done, and there was a certain sense of urgency about it all. What had to come next, now that the resurrection has been accomplished? We can sometimes get these misguided romantic notions about how wonderful it must have been to be there with Jesus and how it would have been wonderful just to stop for a moment and to breathe it all in, to bask in the glory of this newfound hope of the resurrection. Of course, it would have been wonderful. John tells us about miracles that we can't even begin to comprehend, things that he doesn't begin to explain, by the way. Jesus says the doors are locked. Nevertheless, there he is. He doesn't say that he walked through the doors or through the walls. He says he showed up. He showed up with a real body, with flesh and blood. He showed up with a body with wounds that were still there, declaring Jesus' identity, proclaiming his sacrificial love for his people. Could you imagine how wonderful it must have been to be there when suddenly Jesus is in their midst? It would have been wonderful. How wonderful it would have been to have that sense that when Jesus steps into this room that is thick with fear, he's able to sweep it all away with one word of peace and reconciliation with the Father. Yes, it would have been wonderful to be there. Just like it would have been wonderful to to witness all the other things that we wish we would have been there to see. Don't you wish you would have been able to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount to you? Don't you wish that you would have been in that boat when Jesus turned a hurricane into a breeze? Don't you wish you could have seen the look on those Pharisees' faces when Jesus called out to four-day dead Lazarus and he came out bound but living? Everyone who really loves the Lord wishes nothing more than that we could have been there and experienced that and heard it and seen it all. But when Jesus shows up on the night of his resurrection, he tells his disciples, the point is not just to see the resurrection, but to share the resurrection. 
And so he comes to them and he says, Behold, I am sending you. Sending us. <laughs> what do you mean sending us? Where are, where are you sending us? To whom shall we go? Why do we have to go anywhere? You've just gotten here. We thought you were gone. You're back. It's great. Let, let's stay here. Let's, let's breathe it in. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm sending you. That's been the plan all along. That was the mission. This was the fulfillment of the prayer that he offered the night before his crucifixion. They heard him pray in John 17 to the Father, all mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's where he's sending them. He's sending them out of that room with the locked doors and into the world. Out where he's already promised them, people would hate them just like they hated him. Out into the world where they would speak all manner of evil against them falsely on his account. Out into the world where they were, would persecute him. Out into the world where they would not believe the words they had to say about the resurrected Christ they had seen with their own eyes. And Jesus says, you can't stay here. I'm sending you out. There's a job that needs to be done. You know, we rightly speak of the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. If you were here with us on Good Friday, you heard those words all over again, those words from the cross in John's gospel, that as he hung there, he cried out, it is finished. Nothing more to be done. Nothing left for us to add to the work that Jesus has done. He was offered up as a perfect sacrifice, a single sacrifice we read today from Hebrews to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified in him. There is nothing that we can add to the work of Christ by our own filthy rags of good works, nothing we can pile on top to somehow make it more sufficient for our salvation. Jesus' work of salvation is finished, but he shows up to tell his disciples that their work is just beginning. There is an urgency as they are being sent out. Actually, it's a feature of every post-resurrection appearance that Jesus makes in this gospel. He shows up to Mary, and she wants to bow at his feet. What does he say? Don't cling to me. I'm sending you. Go and tell my brothers. Something else is happening. You can't just stay here. Go and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He shows up to the apostles and he says, I'm sending you out. He shows up to Thomas and he says, blessed are those who haven't seen. He shows up beside the lake and he says to Peter, feed my sheep. The work of Jesus Christ is done. It's finished. But on Resurrection Sunday, the work of the gospel was just beginning. And so the Lord has a commission for his disciples. He equips them with the power of the Holy Spirit. He sends them out into the world. Don't get lost in the details. This is not a contradiction with Acts chapter 2. Calvin helpfully tells us here that, that in this upper room or in this room with Jesus, the disciples were sprinkled with the Holy Spirit, but at the day of Pentecost, they were saturated. This is a foretaste. He's preparing them for the reality that he's going to send them out with the message, the message that he gave them. 
The same double-sided sword of the gospel that for those who believe there is salvation and for those who do not believe there is judgment. It's the same message Jesus told them. John chapter 3 verse 18. Whoever believes in the Son will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so Jesus commissions his people and he sends them out. And this is where we need to begin to apply this text. I know you, and I know that for the vast majority of you, you are already living in John chapter 20, verse 20. You have seen the Lord, and you are glad. You weren't there. You didn't see him with your eyes, but you've seen him with your faith. You have beheld the beauty of the rose of Sharon in the pages of Scripture. You have trusted in those hands that were pierced for your transgressions. You have received the blessing of life in his name. And Easter is a day for basking. It's a day for joy. It's a day for worship with the name of the Son of God. It's a day for shouting and singing these great hymns that we love to sing together on Easter Sunday. But you need to know that the message of Easter is incomplete until it goes out. And that means that if the Lord has made you glad with the salvation he has given you, he has also called you and commissioned you to carry it into the world. You're not an apostle. Most of you aren't pastors or or elders. But if you're his, he's equipped you with his spirit. He's given you that same word and he sends you. Maybe he sends you back home into your living room. Maybe he sends you to the dinner table where your children are gathered around and you're the one who needs to tell them about this Savior who was resurrected on the third day. Maybe he sends you into larger family gatherings. He sends you to that brother-in-law with a chip on his shoulder, with that axe to grind against your faith. Maybe he sends you to your co-worker, to your classmate, that woman who cannot get over her mistakes and her failures and the fact that her life has not turned out the way she expected it and who else is going to speak to her about salvation in Christ. Maybe he sends you to a total stranger. Somebody you've never met and you don't know them, but they're going to ask you a question, they're going to make a comment, and it's going to open a conversation much larger than all these temporary things we normally talk about in our day-to-day lives. I don't know where he's sending you, but the truth is that if he's called you, he's commissioned you. He's sending you out. The work of Jesus is done. But the risen Christ has a commission for his children. And if you have seen him, he sends you. He sends you into the world with the message of the gospel. Now, once we've heard Christ's commission, we're ready finally to wrestle with Thomas's doubt. This is our second point. Christ's commission, Thomas's doubt. It's not until verse 24 that we find that Thomas was missing when the rest were gathered. Maybe there's a, a good reason for that. Maybe there was something that needed to be done. He had something else he had to attend to. He, he just couldn't be there. Maybe there's a legitimate reason. Then again, maybe this is the first indication that we get about Thomas's faith. But after he heard or witnessed from afar the crucifixion that happened on Friday, his faith was shattered and broken already, maybe. 
We don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but we know that his absence was significant because his absence means that he becomes the first person recorded in Scripture to disbelieve the apostolic witness to the resurrection. Jesus has called his people, he's commissioned, he sends them out. Verse 25, they go and preach the gospel to Thomas first. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Likely they started with Thomas because they knew Thomas. They loved Thomas. They knew that he loved the Lord, and they knew that if anybody would be predisposed to believing this unbelievable message that they're going to be going out and sharing, clearly it would be this other apostle, handpicked by Jesus. And so they go to him. It should have been a home run to preach the gospel to Thomas. And instead, the apostles get their first taste of rejection that Jesus promised they would experience. He said to them, unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side. I will never believe. That statement tells us several things that we need to keep in mind at all times about the resurrection. The first thing we need to remember that we see in this statement is that the disciples weren't stupid. That's the kind of thing that you hear, that that these men, well, you know, back then they didn't understand science, of course. They knew. They knew that resurrections don't happen as a normal course of natural events. They know that dead people stay dead. They weren't delusional, right? They, They weren't psychotic. They weren't so racked with grief that they were willing to believe unreasonable things just because they wanted to hold on to some vain, empty hopes. We learn from that statement that the disciples weren't stupid. We also learn that the scripture isn't propaganda. If you were going to start a new religion and make it up out of whole cloth, where would you start? Is it with a story that makes one of the founders of that religion look as dense as Thomas looks here? As unbelieving as Thomas appears in these words? No. You start by saying, well, of course everybody believed it because it's the most natural thing to believe in the world and everybody was on board from the get-go. That's how you start with propaganda. But the disciples aren't stupid and the Bible's not propaganda. And the third thing we learn from Thomas's statement is that not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years of human history. Thomas's rejection is what we might call blind unbelief. Skeptics like to talk about our blind faith. Let's turn it around for a minute. Blind unbelief. It is a statement that says, unless I can see it, I will not believe it. It is the primary way that the gospel is rejected even today. It is the all-encompassing, ever-present, all-encompassing demand for evidence. For Thomas, it had to be evidence that was seen as well as felt. He wanted to put his hands where the spear was thrust into Jesus' side. He wanted material evidence. He wanted something he could feel to tell him that what these disciples saw was actually the same Jesus who was crucified outside Jerusalem. And in the absence of that evidence, Thomas not only doubts the resurrection, but he flatly refuses to believe it. Of course, there's nothing wrong with evidence, by the way. 
Right? The, the gospel, the resurrection, doesn't come to us apart from evidence. And even in this chapter of John, there is evidence that you can see. John relates these things to us. He says that Peter and, and he himself, John, when they ran to the tomb, they believed when they saw the evidence. An empty tomb and the folded grave clothes. Mary believed when Jesus spoke her name. The disciples believed when Jesus showed up. There's evidence, and we read it today from 1 Corinthians. Did you hear the evidence of the eyewitness testimony? Paul said Jesus was raised on the third day, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, many of whom are still alive. And if there was a footnote there, it would say, go and ask them. They're there. There's evidence. There's stuff you can see. There are things you can handle. The problem is not evidence. But there is a curious thing that happens as soon as we begin to demand evidence. And that is, as soon as we begin to demand evidence, we make ourselves of the, the judge of the evidence that we're demanding. We put ourselves in the position of, uh, of magistrate, of uh, of, uh, of lawyer, of the one who examines and the one who makes a verdict. And so when you begin to demand evidence, you are the one who decides which data points you will accept and which data points you will reject. You come to a question with a preconceived notion of what it will look like for this question to be answered to your own satisfaction. It is the lack of submission that lies at the heart of all real unbelief. Not just the idea that, you know, the gospel seems unbelievable, but the idea that you will not believe until the gospel meets your standards. And you see this happen all the time. As I said, this is the primary way the gospel is rejected today. You see, it happens sometimes in straightforward theological arguments. There are people who refuse to believe because they think that somehow their scientific convictions might be uh, in jeopardy by what this, the scripture tells them. I don't know, I can't believe until it aligns with my preconceived notions of what it ought to look like. You see it also in moral arguments. There are other people who are offended, scandalized by what they read in the pages of Scripture, some disaster that happened, some thing in the history of God with his people, and then they say, no, 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 until you can convince me, according to my standards, standards normally taken from the scripture, until you can convince me, according to my standards, that God is not a moral monster, I don't have to believe what you're saying. It happens theologically, it happens morally, far more often it happens just personally and experientially, doesn't it? It happens when there's a person who grows up in a Christian home where the, the imbalance of teaching leans further to the law than it does to gospel shows up in the person who prayed for a healing that never came, longed and prayed for a child that was never born, prayed for some other way that God would show up according to the way that they expected him to show up. And, and it shows up in, in people who try out the church thing for a while and then find that becoming a Christian and living this Christian life doesn't actually change their social anxieties or their fears about the future, doesn't actually make them any richer or healthier or happier, at least not in some ways, and so they turn away. It happens in lots of different ways, but it's all a variation on a theme that until the gospel shows up looking exactly the way I think it ought to look, I will not believe. 
It is the rejection of blind unbelief. And when we understand this rejection and the way that it's at work in Thomas, it ought to make us love our Savior all the more. The next words that we read after this uh, rejection come in verse 26, tells us eight days later. In Jewish counting, by the way, you begin counting on the day that you're on. So that's the next Sabbath. It's the next Sunday first day of the week. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him, and he read those words, and we think we know what's going to come next. Thomas is going to get it. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to dress him down, and he's going to throw him out, and he's at least going to lose his place among the apostles, won't he? It's probably good for Thomas. Every now and then you need a little public shame to shake things up and to make sure everybody else stays in line. And we almost can't wait for Jesus to show up and to give him a good talking to. But whatever rebuke we think we know is coming, the truth is far more gracious. Jesus shows up and he says the same word of peace. He proclaims the same word of peace that he gave to all the others. And then he turns to Thomas and what does he do? But he gives him exactly the evidence Thomas is looking for. Every last detail. Reach out your finger. Take a look. Put your hand here and see. No longer disbelieve, but believe. It is undeserved kindness. It is grace abounding to the chief of doubters. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus did not need Thomas to believe? Have you thought about that? He's already down one apostle. Pretty soon, Matthias is going to replace Judas. They're still going to have a full roster of 12. Why not make a few more apostolic substitutions? There's probably somebody sitting on the bench who deserves a bit more playing time than Thomas was going to get. We'll be fine. Have you considered that Jesus does not need Thomas to believe? He doesn't have to condescend to give him the evidence he's demanding. He doesn't have to convince Thomas of anything. Jesus does not need Thomas. But he wants him. He wants him, and so he pursues him. Just the same way that he probably pursued you. Have you considered the fact that Jesus doesn't need you to believe? And maybe your early Christian life looked a lot like mine. Maybe earlier in life your, your theology of Christian experience was a little bit different, and you had some preconceived notions of, what it would look like for God to show up and to speak to you and to call you to himself. And and back then, as you look at it now, there were things that you would never dare to ask the Lord to do for you. Spiritual experiences and ways of speaking through circumstances that you thought you were looking for. You wouldn't ask for it now, but what did the Lord do? He came down to where you were. He spoke in a way that you were willing to listen. Why? Not because he needed you. Because he wanted you. You say, that doesn't sound very Calvinistic, Pastor. It is. What is the basis for God's electing purposes in his people? Is there a necessity outside of God that makes him choose certain people, or does he elect of his own free will? 
unbound by anything you might do in the future. God is the one who desires and pursues, not on the basis of anything in us. God does not need you to believe, and yet he wanted you to. And so he pursued you just the same way he pursued Thomas, even though you didn't deserve it. Now, sometimes that's the way that the Lord works with his people. The real wonder, though, is is what shows up next. Those words that come out of Thomas's mouth. Jesus shows up and he says, see and touch and believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. This is the highest and the greatest confession anywhere in the Gospel of John. John has now come full circle from the first chapter where he's trying to convince us in the opening words that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Christ the eternal Word is fully divine, one with the Father and the Spirit. And along the way, there are a few people that have gotten pretty close to getting it, but nobody like Thomas. My Lord and my God, he said the perfect divine king, the all-powerful creator has stepped into creation. And D.A. Carson says, the most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to the church the most profound confession. It's true. Now, we don't know if Thomas actually took Jesus up on his offer. We don't know if he reached out and touched him where he wanted to touch him, but we know that when Jesus showed up, Thomas believed. He believed not only that the resurrection had happened, but he believed what the resurrection revealed about who Jesus is. That the one who comes with the power over the grave is God himself. How do we know that that's what Thomas believed? Well, we know that because that's what Jesus told him. Turn back with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way, where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. When the resurrected Christ shows up, when Thomas sees him, he cries out, my Lord and my God. It's not just the fact of the resurrection, but what it reveals. The reality that when Christ shows up, Thomas believes not just that he's witnessed a miracle, but that he has seen God Almighty in the flesh of resurrection. We've seen Christ's commission, and we've seen Thomas's doubt. Actually, we've seen Thomas's faith as well. The last thing that we need to see, 
just briefly, is your blessing. The three points today, Christ's commission and Thomas's doubt and your blessing. I think for my money, the best part of Thomas's confession comes in those little possessive pronouns. He doesn't just say God and Lord. He says, my Lord. He says, my God. He doesn't just proclaim that Jesus is almighty and divine. He proclaims that Jesus is his personal refuge against sin and condemnation. My Lord and my God, he says. After all, that's what we need to do. It's not enough. Not enough for sinners to believe that Jesus is the Savior if they do not believe that Jesus is their Savior. So John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes that we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. You hear what he's saying? If Christ is not ours, all that he's done can't do anything for us. He goes on, therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours. And this is what Thomas is confessing. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. Christ has become his by faith. My Lord and my God. And as soon as those possessive pronouns escape from his heart and his lips, the new covenant is fulfilled in Thomas's soul. What did God say in Jeremiah? But I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So here stands Thomas basking in the glory of his resurrected Savior. No sooner does Jesus take the glory of that and turns it outward and pronounces a benediction beyond the boundaries of sight and touch and that first hearing of the gospel. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. It means that not only Thomas is the one who can receive the blessing of forgiveness. It's not only Thomas that can take Jesus as his own. It's not only Thomas that can believe that God has come into flesh. He's saying that there's not some brief historical geographic window that snaps shut at the end of John 20 and everybody who wasn't there is left out. Jesus is pronouncing that all those who believe in him, even though they haven't had Thomas's experience, receive the same blessing and life that Thomas received. Blessed are those who believe without seeing, says Jesus. It's a benediction. Just like we have at the end of our service, God speaking his good word over you. It's a benediction that John immediately turns into an invitation. After all, Thomas is not the hero of this story. We're not meant to read these words so we can come away saying, wow, that hard-headed disciple finally figured it out. Good for him. I guess Thomas isn't so doubting after all. I should change the way that I speak about him. The point isn't for us to think well of Thomas. The point is not for us to think well of ourselves. The point is for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. John says these things are written so that you would believe. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These things are written so that you would make the same profession that Thomas did. So that you would claim Christ as your own by faith. So that you would believe that he has conquered the sting of death and the power of the law on your behalf. These things are written so that you would believe what Thomas got to see. And that by believing you might have life in Jesus' name. Well, the work of our salvation is finished in Jesus. But on Easter, we're reminded that the word of the gospel is just beginning. It's still at work. It's still going forth. And there is no greater thing that you can do on Easter Sunday than to make Thomas's God your God. To make his confession your confession. To take his Lord as your Lord. And for those of you who have believed already and are glad in the Lord, there's no greater thing that you can do on Easter Sunday than to take his confession and your blessing and proclaim it to somebody else who hasn't yet heard. Christ the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. May we be those who go forth and rejoice in him and speak of him to a watching world. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for Christ, your Son. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness and peace through him, reconciliation with you through his perfect sacrifice and the gift of his resurrection. We thank you for our first fruits. It was raised to give us the promise of life with you. O oh Lord, meet us, we pray. Give us faith in you. Give us spiritual eyes to see and hearts to believe and cause us to receive the blessing of life by his name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.